0: Good morning and nice to be with you. Um, I would like to start with a little bit of a song that you will hear more in the secular world. I'm not gonna sing it but I'm gonna read it but you might notice this as you hear. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. I believe that somewhere in the darkest night, A hand candle glows. I believe that everyone who goes astray, someone will come to show the way. Oh, I believe, I believe. I believe above the storm, the smallest prayer will still be heard. I believe that someone in the great somewhere hears every word. Every time I hear a newborn baby cry, or touch a leaf or see the sky, then I know why I believe. I've always liked that song. It's been sung by Frankie Valley, Frankie Sinatra, the Letterman, and of course, many others throughout the time. And what appeals to me, and I think the millions also that love it, is that it declares. That there is hope in this world. I'd like to look at this as we just finished up a Thanksgiving week. My sister-in-law, as our family got together on Friday, did an interesting thing. She had slips of paper as we went in. There was like 45 of us that got together. And as we go in, she had us write down what we are thankful for. And then after we ate, she read them. A lot of times you heard family religion. And I started to think about this. What are we thankful for as Christians? If you had to write down, as you came in this morning, what are you thankful for? Thankful for Jesus. Thankful for God. But think about that as we go through this lesson. I've called it Miracles for Moses is the title of this morning. Our text, which I'll get to in a little bit, is Found in Exodus, sorry, not Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. So if you go just to Exodus 4, I will be getting there in just a moment. So we think about what appeals to us. And the reason there's hope is because we believe in God who does the mighty things. In fact, as Christians, that's the power of what we believe. We believe in a God who does stuff. A God who does mighty stuff. Miracles, we would call it. And that brings me to our story this morning. Moses has been commissioned by God who tells him, come now, therefore. Oh, I'm reading it right now. I'm just going to preface this by reading in Ecclesiastes 3 and 10. When I say Ecclesiastes, do Exodus. Okay. Betty knows what I'm talking about because whenever I say "Betty," I mean Betty, and whatever. Say, "yes," so anyhow, and so uh, whenever I say uh, Exodus, I don't know why I got ecclesiastes in my head. We're in Exodus. Stay there. I will go to a new few few New Testaments, but not yet. Exodus three and ten. It says that um, come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people and the children of Israel out of Egypt. The problem is that Moses doesn't want to go. Some of us today, we know what we should do, but sometimes we have to talk ourselves into it. I know since I've had this heart issue and now the doctor's giving me the okay, my wife says, okay, well, and and I'm sitting in my chair thinking, I should get up, but it's very comfortable right here. So the problem is Moses doesn't want to. And he's been trying one excuse after another to get out of it. But I believe today from this text that we're looking at now, four, one through nine, that it gets to the heart of why Moses doesn't really wanna go. I don't think Moses believes anymore. He might have believed once. He might have felt that he was ordained by God to save the people of Israel. I mean, that's probably why he struck and killed the Egyptian who had been beating an Israelite. But God hasn't rewarded him for stepping up and defending his people. And so Moses had become a fugitive from justice and an exile for at least 40 years. Now God has come to Moses and asked Moses to believe in him. And Moses is saying, thanks, but no thanks. Moses says in verse 1, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. They will not believe. Today, oftentimes, why am I hesitant to share my faith to maybe others? Am I a little bit hesitant because, (coughs) pardon me, they won't believe me? Am I afraid that they'll make fun of me or ridicule me? Under his breath, I can sense Moses saying, I don't either. I, I don't believe either. Moses is struggling with unbelief, I think. So I think there's three miracles, the, uh, sorry, that these three miracles are as much for Moses' benefit as they would be, have been for the Israelites that he's being sent to help. The miracles are there to give Moses confidence, and it's something that he def- definitely and desperately needs. And I'm sure as we read the Old Testament, to encourage us in the New Testament, these are words for us also. So we get to these three miracles, we need to understand the nature of miracles. First, the nature of miracles. When God does something miraculous, He always has a reason. In the Bible, for example, there are five seasons of miracles where God used numerous miracles to establish something that He wanted done. At creation, first off in creation, he did miracle after miracle. He spoke, the sun appeared. He spoke, dry land appeared. He spoke and there was a fish and birds and numerous animals. Then when God flooded the earth, there was miracle upon miracle. God brought the animals to Noah. He flooded the earth. The waters descended. God directed Noah in every step of the way. When Moses led Israel out of slavery until they settled. There were 10 plagues God brought upon Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, then the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the miraculous giving of water and manna out in the wilderness. When God used prophets like Elijah and Elisha, he again used numerous miracles to try to draw his people back from paganism. And of course during Jesus's ministry to Jesus establishing the church, there were numerous healings, raising people from the dead, and casting out of demons. It has been noted that if these miracles were happening every day, they wouldn't be called miracles. They would be called regulars. But when God did miraculous things, there was always a reason. A second thing I'd like you to remember about miracles is that God does them when he's ready to do them. If God does something spectacular in your life, it will be on his timetable, not yours. And that can be frustrating for a lot of people. There was once an old time minister who was known for his great faith. But one day a friend saw him pacing back and forth on the floor and he looked agitated. His friend asked him, what's the problem? The preacher replied, the problem is, I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. God's not always in a hurry to do things on our timetable. And that's why the Bible repeatedly tells us, wait, a few verses I'd like just to hit. Psalms 37 and seven, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Or Psalms 27 and 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Isaiah 40 and 31 they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not be faint the key thing for us to remember is that God commands us to wait God will do mighty things when he sees the need and when he's ready to do them, but not until then. Now, I believe in a mighty God who does mighty things, don't you? Great, I sure hope so, because I'm sure you wouldn't want me up here in this pulpit if I didn't believe that God is powerful and is capable of doing mighty things new testament matthew thirteen 58. we're told that jesus did not do many works in his hometown because of their unbelief their lack of faith robbed that area that specific area of god's power in their lives however there was one instance in jesus's ministry where That wasn't completely true. In Mark chapter 9, verses 17 to 24, we're told the following. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out but they could not. Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him when he saw Jesus. Immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you do, can do, if you, speaking to Jesus, the man father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to that father, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears lord i believe and then the next three words is my focus today help my unbelief that is what the father says to jesus lord i believe help my unbelief Some of us write key verses, put them on the refrigerator and so on, our closet door or whatever, our mirror. That is one I like to reflect on for a while as we get close to starting in a new year. Lord, I believe. I wanna believe. Lord, I believe. And please help the times that I have unbelief. And Jesus healed the boy. For me, that's one of the most comforting verses in scripture. The very idea that I could say to God, help my unbelief. And he had mercy on me as he did that father. The fact of all of that is mind boggling. That God, while we were yet sinners, said his son, help my unbelief. And I think that's kind of where Moses is right now. I think he wants to believe, but it's been a long time since he thought God had cared that much about him and even gave him a second thought. And so in his unbelief, God has mercy on him and shows Moses his power. God does the miraculous in Moses. He shows Moses's um, miracles in his life because that's what Moses needed at that time. Now, what I find interesting about these three miracles that God allows Moses to do is that they're all kind of a, some people call them a parlor trick. You know what a parlor trick is, don't you? It's a mirror magic that's simply meant to entertain you, but it's not all that impressive. I think about the magicians today. I don't know how they do it, but you know, I love to watch that and you think, wow, how do he do it? But you know, there's no way they have special powers. And I love that when the one magician, over a few years, probably about a year or two ago, had to wear a mask and he revealed all the you know secrets of some of the magicians, things that he did. And he said, he didn't want the, the other magicians hated him because he was giving away some of the secrets of how they did things, and they called it the secrets of the magicians. And he would show how they, you know, could kind of do that. Well, you think about what Moses is going to do, but this is Moses. This is a man that God used to bring the plagues down from Egypt, to part the Red Sea, to bring water from a rock when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. Those aren't part of their tricks. There's nobody who's going to stand there and make that Red Sea part. There's nobody who's going to bring water out of a rock and things like that and have manna come from the sky every day to feed the Israelites. And the the comparison, these three miracles aren't really all that impressive, what Moses is going to do that I'm going to talk about now. So I got to thinking that maybe there might be more to these three miracles than meets the eye. I believe there's something about three miracles that teach us something special about our God. And if you've been reading, you've already read ahead on three miracles I'm gonna talk about. Let's take them one at a time. What's the first miracle Moses is told to do? He's told to take his staff, he's gonna turn it into a snake. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? Moses says, it's a staff. And God says, throw it on the ground. I'm sure at this point, Moses is thinking, what? Throw my staff on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. I'm like Moses, I'd run from it about the time I throw my staff down, and it turns into a snake. I'm not standing there, doesn't know what's going on, but it turns into a serpent. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand out and catch it by the tail. If this wasn't God speaking, I don't know that I'd be reaching down and grabbing the serpent by the tail. But he puts his hand out and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand as you read in the first, you know, verses two, three, and four of our text. A preacher once noted, why would God turn that rod into a snake in the first place? Couldn't he have done it to a mouse, a dog, a cat, or something less frightening as an animal than that serpent? (laughs) I think God turned, this minister said, I think God turned that rod into a snake because the serpent was the symbol of power that was worn on the crown of Pharaoh. It was as if God was saying to Moses, I created the power and glory that Pharaoh claims on his own. And I can take that power from him at any time that I wish. So this preacher felt that the serpent represented Pharaoh. And God turning Moses' staff into a snake was God's way of declaring that he had power over Pharaoh. And that got to me thinking, that got me thinking a little bit, who else is symbolized as a serpent? And of course, Satan. That's what Revelation 12 and 9, I believe, says, when it says the and the great dragon was thrown down, and that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. In scripture, we're told that God has power over Satan. You don't have to be afraid of him because when God takes hold of your life, Satan can't harm you. We talked about that in our Bible study this morning. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw closer unto God. We know, and by the way, that's in Hebrews chapter four. No, yes, James, I realized as I said that, might as well, you remember when I say Hebrews, I mean James and yeah, keep it going here. I'm gonna, next time I'll write out an answer key to so you can keep up with the election. Okay, but yeah, that's in James chapter four. So in 1 John 5.18, we read, you know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. Now there was a caveat there. If you continue to sin, If you allow the bitterness of lust or greed or, or some other sin to rule your life, you might be giving Satan an opening as we talked about this morning. You'll be giving him an opportunity to harm you and to set up camp in your life. You certainly, I'm sure, don't want that. But if you give that sin to God, like Moses gave his staff to God, God can use your repentance as a way to destroy Satan's power. And that was the first miracle. God showing his power over Satan. Now we come to the second miracle. What was Moses asked to do? Put his hand in his cloak. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. These are verses 7 and 8. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Now, fortunately, God led with the serpent. Because leprosy is a terrible disease. And about the time that I do that, and my hand now is totally leprous, I would have to be thinking, oh no. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. I'd be quick to do that, I think. Wouldn't you? So he puts his, I'm sure he quickly puts it back in there, and he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out again, he was restored. His flesh was restored on his hand like the rest of his body. One scholar noted that leprosy was the the scourge of the ancient world. Nothing invoked more fear, more dread, more revulsion than the sight of the walking dead. The smell of decaying flesh would announce their presence before you even saw or heard them, I'm sure. And then you would have that long cry before they came, that rasping cry of unclean, unclean, because they had to announce that. The disease slowly destroyed their bodies and made them untouchable to society. Most scholars explain that leprosy was a vivid and graphic picture of the spiritual defilement of sin. Like leprosy, sin is very ugly. It is uncurable and contaminating disease. And it separates us from God and makes us outcast individuals that are isolated. Leprosy was a horrible picture of what sin does to us. And so as the serpent represented God's power over Satan, The miracle of leprosy and that leprous hand represented God's power over sin. Moses was being sent into Egypt to free the Israelites from slavery and in the same way Jesus was sent to free us from the leprous slavery of sin. Now in Romans 7 Paul goes to great lengths to describe the power of sin and the power that it can have over us. We can read in Romans 7 24 all the way to chapter 8 verse 2. It says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Just as leprosy made its victims be the walking dead, so also sin made us the walking dead. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So we are freed from the power of sin by the blood of Jesus. We're no longer the walking dead. We're no longer that leprous-like destructiveness of sin. It has been washed away. Now there is no more shame and no more guilt. We are free because of God's power over sin and that was the second miracle. Now, what was the last miracle that Moses was to perform? God said, you shall take some water from the Nile, and you shall pour it on the dry land. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry land. That is verse 9 of our text. The Nile brought life to Egypt. It was literally the lifeblood of Egypt, because without the Nile, Egypt would die. Thus, as the serpent represented God's power over Satan, and leprosy represented God's power over sin, we see now that the water of the Nile represented God's power over life and death. The Bible tells us about a man named Jairus. He was the leader of the synagogue where Jesus was at. Jairus came to Jesus because his 12-year-old daughter was terribly sick, and he wanted Jesus to come to his home and heal her. But as Jesus and the Father were walking to their home, they're about halfway there when a servant comes and tells Jairus, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your little girl is dead. The first thing I ever thought, you know, when I, when I heard this, the first time when I heard this biblical account in the life of Jesus, I have to admit, I was kind of shocked. Like, how could this guy be walking with Jesus kind of looking for Jesus' help, and he gets the word that the daughter died. We had to feel that this isn't going to be the end of the story when Jesus isn't concerned. It's, if Jesus had been there in time, this little girl wouldn't have died, and the death seemed so final. That, that's the part of the story that started to, to disturb me. It's final. But Jesus told Jerry, what? It'll be all right. And then he went on to this home. When he entered his home, he entered the room where the child laid. He took her in hand. He said, child, arise. And the girl came back to life. Many are asked if they fear death. Most did. That's not surprising. The Bible tells us that everybody fears death. But that's why Jesus came, isn't it? To have power over death. I'd like to start wrapping this up. Last verse I'm going to read or section and I'm going to do my conclusion. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And Deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, when we belong to Jesus, we don't have to be afraid of death. Jesus conquered death in order to give us life and the promise of eternal life. I'd like to close with this. One day in Sunday school, a girl, a 10 year old girl, asked the minister if death would be a time of eternal blackness. She was serious, and it deeply bothered her. The minister looked upon her and smiled and said, oh no, when we become Christians, death has no power over us. That's the imagery God uses in baptism, that when Jesus died for us, he was buried in his tomb. But he didn't stay there. We know that he arose from the dead. We have that song that we sing, Christ arose, you know, he arose. In baptism, the Bible says we die to our sins. And what we do, what do we do with dead people? When we die, we bury them. That's why baptism is a burial in water, that we're buried with Christ. We know that we can read of that in Romans 6, 2, 3, and 4, that how can we have, who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into Jesus' death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The lesson I try to convey to you is that, We need that belief. We can read about the miraculous power that God had. The symbolization, symbolically, everything that God did had a purpose. And we can see the revelation from Old Testament to New Testament. God had a plan from the very beginning. Many people will say, well, how can you believe that the Bible... In the beginning, God created. Where did God come from? Where did the world come from? And so on. They talk about science. always talks about billions of years. Well, we know when God created the earth, it had an age. He, I don't picture, like when he created trees, they weren't little tiny saplings or seeds waiting to grow. I picture when God created trees, he created animals. I picture they had an age to them. So when they asked what came first, the chicken or the egg, you know it was the chicken. God, I don't think, created eggs. He created chickens. So I can answer that question right away. And you got it right there. And my point being that God had a plan from the very beginning. It is easy for me to say, in the beginning, God created. And if you read the Old and New Testament, there is a system that points in all directions to a set plan that God had from the very beginning. You had a conversation in Genesis that says, let us, so you know there was more than one, let us, God, the Son, the Holy Spirit, let us create man in our image. We know from that point, I picture, there was a plan from what was going to happen. All the way to the book of Revelation, when we have those encouraging words that Jesus says, be faithful unto death that you might receive that crown of righteousness. That lesson is yours. If we have any need to be baptized or to ask for the prayers of the congregation, we have that opportunity as together we stand and sing.